If someone were to ask you, what is the gospel, what would you say? Some might say the gospel is about us living in a way that pleases God. Some might say the gospel is about us being able to get to heaven and escape from the penalty of hell. Others might say the gospel is that we should be good people and go to church every Sunday. Someone were to ask you what the gospel is, again, what would you say? Well, I've tried to make a point in the past specifically to emphasize the gospel as the New Testament does, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, where he states, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul viewed the gospel as that which was of first importance. He said, there was nothing more important for me to deliver to you than this. He says there, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to many. In that text, Paul provides a summary of the content of the gospel message that he shared with them. Certainly, he would have elaborated on some aspects of the message more than others, depending on the Bible literacy of the audience. The group in Corinth would likely have had some Bible background to draw from as he's writing this letter to them. He said, Christ died for our sins. Well, who is Christ? His hearers may have understood that reference. Certainly, while he was with them, he would have expounded. Christ is the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come into rule according to the scriptures. He is the Messiah who was sent to rule by God who rules as creator over all. That God is creator and ruler is a part of the assumed background of the Old Testament. Just as the Old Testament sacrifices were instituted, a life for a life, the shed blood of an animal to atone for the sins of many, the Christ, the Messiah, was sent to die for our sins. He could die for our sins because he was righteous. He always kept the law of God, even though we didn't. He was the Lamb of God, unblemished and spotless. This is all according to the scriptures. If you read Isaiah 53, you'll see that. Paul said he was buried, meaning he actually died. He didn't just faint. He wasn't acting. There was no stage, no retake. He breathed his last breath while on the cross. Jesus, the man, died. He died and was buried. This was again prophesied according to scriptures, Isaiah 53. Furthermore, he was raised on the third day. He didn't remain dead. He couldn't stay dead. Death could not hold him. He has power over sin and death. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and as such has earned life. Sin earns death. Jesus was righteous. He kept all of the law of God. Therefore, he earned life. Even in the face of death, that life was granted to him and to all who trust in him. This was all according to the scriptures, that he would not undergo decay, Psalm 16. Again, Paul tailored the message of the gospel, the good news, to his hearers. Similarly to the way he does on Mars Hill in the book of Acts, which Deacon Charles read for us earlier. Paul doesn't even really mention the scriptures there because his audience would have had no context for the scriptures and the importance of the scriptures. Perhaps over time he would have elaborated further. They did ask him to come back again. But at that time he provided the content of the gospel message in a form they would have understood 
taking a look back at that passage again, Paul starts with just a general idea or a general notion of God, which he admitted that they had. He said, I perceive that you are very religious. I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now, they would have worshipped many gods. In their supposed wisdom, they also had an altar to the unknown God, meaning they wanted to make sure that they covered all their bases. And so they had this altar with this inscription, basically to say, just in case we miss somebody, here is an altar to this God. And Paul says, you have missed someone. You've missed a very important someone, and I'm going to tell you who that someone is right now. He referenced God as the God who made the world and everything in it. Again, the starting point of a biblical worldview. He is the creator. He is also the sustainer of all things. In him we live and move and have our being, he said in Acts 17. And he follows that up with he has fixed a day. The same God, the creator God, the one who they don't know, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Again, that idea of righteousness comes back by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Judgment is coming. It is coming from the ruler of the world. Judgment is not arbitrary, but is in accord with righteousness, his righteousness, the righteousness of God. He has a standard, and he's going to judge us according to that. The man whom he has appointed, the man whom he has appointed as judge, the one who will measure out that judgment, God has confirmed to everyone by raising him from the dead. Those things would have needed further explanation, but again, Paul gave a summary of the content of the gospel message. Wherever he went, whomever he was around, he shared the gospel, but he tailored it to make sure that they understood certain truths. God is the creator and thus has authority over us. We know that's true from Genesis 1.1. We have sinned, meaning we have disobeyed. We don't follow his standard. God has a standard. Again, we talk about the idea of righteousness. That's God's standard of what is right. But we fall short of that, Romans 6.23. God sent Jesus who obeyed that standard and who became for us a sacrifice, 1 John 2, verse 2. He satisfies the wrath of God for us. God raised Jesus from the dead. He didn't stay dead. And he's accepted his sacrifice, having declared him Lord over all, Romans 4, 24 and 25. Jesus is judge. He is Lord. Either we obey and trust him or we will face his judgment in the end. Acts 17, 31 and John 3, 36. As we share the gospel, we must ensure that those certain elements, those certain truths from the word of God are present. And as we do that, we can be sure that God will work. Paul and the other apostles who were told that they would be his witnesses shared the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they were confident that as the word of God says in Romans 10 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And also Romans 1 16, the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. They were confident in that. They were sure of it. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you make a point of delivering what is of first importance whenever you have the opportunity? Do you do so with confidence, not in your ability or in your wisdom or your speaking prowess? Also, not shrinking away and making it about you and about your lack of ability to speak, because it's not about you. But making it about God and his authority of his word. Do you speak with confidence, believing that God is able to save those who hear and believe? 
Well, that is what we are called to do, beloved. We're called to make disciples, and we do that as we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we preach the good news of Jesus Christ, as we preach the gospel and share the word of God, we are to trust God with the rest. As we return to the book of Jonah this morning, we come face to face with this truth. The word of God is the power of God to save those who believe, period. The effectiveness of the word of God is not dependent on man. It's not dependent on circumstance. It is dependent on God alone. Our job as believers, as preachers, is to simply proclaim the word of God, to proclaim the gospel, trusting that it is the power of God to save those who believe. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 3 if you haven't. We'll read Jonah chapter 3, and then we'll go through the text together. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let us pray. Father, we come before you, before your word again, praying that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word, from your truth. Praying, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would indeed be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, so far, we have seen Jonah in rebellion against the Lord. He was called to go to Nineveh, but instead ran to Tarshish. He sinned in rebellion against the Lord. He was a prophet. Prophets were supposed to prophesy. That's what they were called to do. They were supposed to prophesy what the Lord commanded, where the Lord commanded, when the Lord commanded, and to whom he commanded. Jonah did not do that. And as a result of his rebellion, the Lord brought consequences into Jonah's life, grave consequences. Both he and the sailors on the ship that he hired to flee from the presence of the Lord were in danger of losing their lives. Ultimately, in order to save themselves, Jonah instructed the sailors to cast him into the raging sea. Jonah found himself sinking in the depths of the Mediterranean with no hope and no help. As a believer, Jonah remembered that the Lord was his God. In his despair, he cried out to the Lord for help. He cried out to the Lord remembering that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting concerning calamity. He remembered that the Lord hears those who call by faith in prayer. He remembered that salvation belongs to the Lord. He called and the Lord answered. The Lord hears the cries of his people. He hears and he answers. He never turns a deaf ear to his people. He is God and he is good. In Jonah's case, the Lord answered miraculously by sending a fish to swallow him, to save him from drowning in the sea and to preserve his life in the belly of a fish until he was able to be returned to dry land three days later. That is where we left Jonah, vomited up on dry land, but alive and presumably having learned his lesson. Well, we pick up there in chapter 3. An outline for this text is as follows. And remember, again, when we are looking at historical narrative, an outline follows the events of the narrative. We're not, as we were in the letter of Philippians, breaking down sentences and paragraphs. As we're looking at a narrative, historical narrative, we're thinking through the events that happen and using that as a structure or an outline for us. Well, in chapter 3, we see four main movements. In verses 1 through 4, we see Jonah's proclaiming. In verse 5, we see the people repenting. In verses 6 through 9, we see the king proclaiming. And then in verse 10, we see the Lord relenting. Jonah's proclaiming, the people repenting, the king proclaiming, and the Lord relenting. Well, let's look at that first point, Jonah's proclaiming in verses 1 through 4. I'll read it again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, the first words of this section hold a formula that we would expect to see in prophetic writings. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. It said such-and-such, and the prophet in question rose and went to proclaim it. That's what we always expect to see in prophetic writings. If we see something otherwise, it's shocking. Again, that's what prophets do. They proclaim direct revelation from God. Prophets prophesy. It's more than just forthtelling. Prophets are prophets because they receive direct revelation from God. That's what a prophet is. And they proclaim that to the people to whom God directs. We know from chapter 1 that's not what Jonah did. Again, he rebelled. But now we're on the other side of Jonah's chastening, and the word of the Lord comes to him, as the text says, a second time. And the words of the call here in chapter 3 are not so different from chapter 1. Chapter 1, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Here, the Lord says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is a second chance for Jonah. I like what Warren Wiersbe said about this idea of Jonah receiving a second chance. He says, when we fall, the enemy wants us to believe that our ministry has ended and there's no hope for recovery, but our God is the God of a second chance. And he quotes this passage, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You don't have to read very far in your Bible to discover that God forgives his servants and restores them to ministry. Abraham fled to Egypt where he lied about his wife, but God gave him another chance. Jacob lied to his father Isaac, but God restored him and used him to build a nation. Moses killed a man and fled to Egypt, but God called him to be the leader of his people. Peter denied the Lord three times, but Jesus forgave him. God is a God of second chances. He has compassion on his people. 
when we call out in humility, he does respond. Moving on, verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Clearly he had learned something from the events of the past two chapters. I said previously, the repentance is illustrated by a change of mind, which leads to a change of action. Previously, Jonah ran away. Now he simply arose and went to Nineveh in obedience. And we don't know how much time elapsed between Jonah's arrival on whatever beach he was spat out on in the second call. I think it's not really that important for the purpose of the narrative. It could have been immediately or it could have been some time afterward. Either way, Jonah had learned his lesson and now willingly and immediately obeyed when he was called. And for those parents out there, or grandparents, that is what obedience is. It's immediate. It's willing. It's uncomplaining. If you have to count to three, that's not obedience. If, to have to, if you have to repeat yourself multiple times, it's not obedience. If you have a lot of back talk and complaining and whatnot, that's not obedience. Obedience is immediate, it is willing, and it is uncomplaining. And we have to teach that to our children because that's what God expects. It's not just because it's nice for us. It's because we live in a world where God expects for us to obey immediately. And so it behooves us as parents to teach our children to obey immediately. Moving on again back to our text, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now, there have been a number of things in the book of Jonah with the attached adjective great That seems to be a favorite description of the author. Nineveh is called the great city, chapter 1, verse 2, also chapter 3 here, and chapter 4, verse 11. The Lord hurled a great wind, we remember from chapter 1. Jonah referred to the tempest as a great tempest in chapter 1, verse 12. The Lord appointed a great fish, also in chapter 1. The term great is used not haphazardly, but in order to emphasize something. In the case of the wind, the tempest, the sea, and the fish, it's intended to illustrate the Lord's sovereign control over these things and his determination to get Jonah's attention. He didn't send just a little wind. He sent a great wind. It didn't cause just a little tempest. It caused a great tempest. God was in control of this. With reference to the city, however, it's used to describe here a great city, not because you should stand in awe of the greatness of the city, but rather to emphasize that there were a great number of people involved. We understand that, and we'll discuss that again when we get to chapter 4, verse 11, where the text says, and this is quoting from God, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That it is a great city should help us to understand the compassionate heart of God for people. He sees this great city represented by 120,000 people. Their evil has come up before him. And yes, his judgment for their sin has been aroused. But more to the point of the book of Jonah, his compassion for them has been aroused. Thus, before the Lord measures out his judgment upon them for their sin, he desired to provide them an opportunity to repent. And so Jonah was sent. We'll come back to this again, but again, we cannot escape the compassionate heart of God for the lost. What he calls here, and what he calls in chapter 4, the ignorance of the lost. As it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But again, Nineveh is called that great city, and it is further qualified in verse 3 as three days' journey in breadth. 
That means that it would take three days to walk the breadth of Nineveh. Of course, this fact wasn't lost on the Lord. Perhaps the three days that Jonah spent in the belly of the fish was intended to further cement in Jonah's mind how foolish it was for him to have run. You could have taken just a three days journey and preached. Now you have to hang out in the belly of the fish for three days. Regardless, it meant that Nineveh was a massive city at that time, a massive city with, again, lots of people. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Again, Jonah was called to go and preach. He was told to preach the message that the Lord would give him, so he went and did it. I don't think there's necessarily anything significant about the fact that he went one day's journey. Perhaps it was just a good stopping point. Maybe there was a square available for him to preach in order to have the greatest impact. The point overall, again, is that Jonah is obeying the word of God. He was told to go and preach, and so he did. And the message that he proclaimed was simple enough. And I take this to be representative of the whole message, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why do I call it representative? Again, we already know that there are certain things that the author hasn't shared with us. There are certain things as we've gone through the narrative that he just didn't record the verbatim of. Jonah got onto the ship headed to Tarshish and did not tell the crew his name. We know that because later on they asked him, who are you? And he had to explain who he was and where he was from. And when Jonah said who he was, he told them that he was running from the Lord in chapter 1, verse 10. But we don't actually have those words recorded as such. This is the later commentary from the author. There's also the matter of the prayer in the sea in chapter 2. We talked about that. We know that he prayed in the sea, but we don't have the verbatim words of it. The author just left those out because the verbatim words were not important. I take all that to mean that in the course of writing this narrative, the author has simply left certain verbatim words out that he didn't deem necessary. Ultimately, they're not necessary because if they were, then the word of God would have revealed them. But I also reason from that that the Lord didn't desire to capture for us a verbatim statement of what he said to Jonah. It wasn't necessary. It's not necessary for us to receive the instruction, the lesson that we should learn. The other reason why I suspect that Jonah's words here are representative is that the Lord desired for the people to repent. And as we discussed earlier at the beginning, there are certain elements of the gospel that are necessary. And as we proclaim those certain elements of the gospel, the Lord does his work. I said earlier, there are many times that a message will be tailored to an audience, meaning you may emphasize some things to some people and not other things. For example, you may need to spend more time talking about the word of God, that in the word of God, it's clear that God has authority over us for those who are unchurched. But for those who have been to church previously, you may not need to spend that much time talking about that. Well, the message recorded here, the words that are recorded here from Jonah are very simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But there must have been more to it than that. Who's going to overthrow it? Is it Jonah? Does he have an army? Is it his people, the Hebrews? Why are they going to overthrow it? What has Nineveh done to offend the coming conqueror? How are they going to overthrow it? This is a great city. The Assyrians have and will conquer many. Why is this judgment coming to them? There are so many questions from that simple message. There just must have been more to it than that. I think this is a summary statement from Jonah. And the summary is, you guys are in trouble. And we do see other elements of what he shared with them as we move on. Look at verse 5. The people repented from his message. 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now I take this to be a summary statement of the response of the whole city. In the next couple of verses, verses 6 through 9, we'll focus in on the king in particular. Nevertheless, this verse summarizes the whole response of Nineveh from the least of them to the greatest, it says. So all the way from the king to the peasant, this is how they responded. And the question is, again, why? Why did they respond by believing God? Well, it's been suggested that it was Jonah's appearance that led the people believing God and quickly repenting. Having stayed in the belly of a fish for three days certainly could have an impact on a person. Some have suggested that three days inside the belly of a fish with gastric juices having their work could have changed Jonah physically, perhaps bleaching his skin tone or in some other way. This has been illustrated by a kid's program called Veggie Tales, which I highly recommend. It's very, uh, it's educational and it's fun. And it's literally what it sounds like. There are vegetables who uh, portray characters in Bible stories. Um, the older stories are, are certainly a whole lot better than the newer stories, so if you're going to delve into it, if you haven't, I would suggest getting the older stories. Well, there is one about Jonah, and it's um, kind of a comical rendition of it, but uh, the character of Jonah, his, his skin tone is, is markedly different after having spent three days in the belly of a fish. And of course, you know, when he's brought into the town square, the, um, the king, you know, he's brought before the king. My kids are laughing because they've been uh, reminding me of this ever since I started preaching through the book of Jonah. But, um, you know, they bring uh, the character of Jonah to the town square, and the king asks one of his officials to smell him. Because Jonah's been hanging out in the belly of this fish, and, uh, you know, the official reaches over and smells Jonah, and he faints because Jonah <laughs> smells absolutely awful. It's, uh, it's hilarious. <clears throat> Moving on from there. But, um, yeah. It was, uh, it's, it's quite hilarious. But that's just, it's just representative of one of the ideas of um, why the people of Nineveh may have responded to Jonah so quickly because, um, because he was in the belly of the fish. Um, I, I think that's possible, but not necessarily likely. Um, you know, it was the Lord's desire in sending the fish to preserve Jonah, Right? So he put him in the belly of the fish, not to to change him or alter him in any particular way, but really to preserve his life. So he probably came out unharmed and unaffected. And really, if Jonah had obeyed in chapter one, there would have been no fish. So um, I I think it's possible that he came out smelling and, uh, you know, somehow altered or changed, but not not necessarily likely. Uh, Somewhat related to this idea, it was suggested that Nineveh had experienced a number of natural disasters around the time that Jonah would have arrived. So, you know, seeing this guy coming out of uh, the experience that he just had and proclaiming that your nation is about to be overthrown. They've just had all of these these great and terrible natural disasters. Maybe, you know, some people suppose that that was kind of priming them for receiving the message that Jonah had proclaimed Again, it's possible. I don't think it's necessary. But looking back at the text again, it says that the people believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. I think, in other words, Jonah had at least made known to them that it was God who intended to overthrow Nineveh. 
And again, we don't have those verbatim words, but it seems more likely that he let them know who it was who was coming to overthrow them. And if he shared that it was God, again, using a bit of imagination, he would have likely described God in the same way that he did to the pagan sailors. He is the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Perhaps he shared with them what he had just gone through after having disobeyed the Lord. Perhaps he shared his ordeal, being a servant of God who disobeyed, yet having nearly lost his life as a consequence before repenting. But likely he would have told them something to let them know who it was he was up against. He could have said something like this. Again, this is God, the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He is angry with you. You have sinned against him. You have wronged him. Your evil has come up before him. And in 40 days, unless you repent, your nation will be overthrown. Something like that. He would have put the message out there. Perhaps there were follow-up questions that were asked and he answered. But he put it out there and he let it sink in and let the Lord do his work. And though the text doesn't say so, as he always did, the Lord does a work in the hearts of people. The text further says they, will, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. God does a work in the hearts of men when they hear the gospel. Again, the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. We maintain as we read passages like Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says we were as dead men to God. Dead men don't answer. Dead men don't respond. They don't get up. They don't listen to you when you call to them. They don't know that they're in danger. God has to do something to the heart of a dead man. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually understood. Dead men cannot understand the value of spiritual things when they hear them unless God does a work in their heart first. Titus 3, he saved us, not because of works which we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God has to wash our hearts. He has to renew our hearts. When the word of God goes forth, the Holy Spirit goes forth in power to wash us to give us new life so that we may then, not as dead men respond, which dead men don't do, but as those alive from the dead respond to the word of God. God has to do that. He does that through his word. Well, the object of faith was not entirely clear in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints didn't necessarily know the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, his sacrifice is sufficient for saints of all time. So as God's word goes forth, whether it was in the Old Testament or the New, pardon is given on the basis of the salvation that Christ was going to wrought on the cross. Bottom line for this is that we must simply preach the word of God and we must have confidence that God will do the rest. 
Moving on in the text, we see the kings proclaiming in verses 6 through 9. And again, chapter, verse 5 was kind of a summary statement. Now we're zeroing in on what happened behind the scenes, so to speak. We see the kings proclaiming. The word of God, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Again, verse five was a summary. And we see the details here. Jonah's proclamation goes forth. The king hears about it. It says again, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He isn't angry that some random prophet is going through a city making these bold claims. He doesn't respond as the king of Egypt says, who is the Lord? Instead, he seemingly miraculously realizes that the fate of the city is in his hands at this moment. and That his next response could seal their fate. But what does he do? Again, the text says he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, the king doesn't step down from his throne for anyone. The king certainly wouldn't step down from his throne and intentionally place himself in ashes for anyone. Clearly, the king was affected by the word proclaimed by Jonah. He was afraid. And he thought that the only right response to avoid the anger of God would be to humble himself. That display of humility, removing his royal robes, covering himself, not with royal robes, but sackcloth. Rough, itchy, heavy, hot sackcloth. And sitting in ashes. This was a display of humility, a display of mourning. This was a leader taking responsibility for his people, taking responsibility and illustrating humility before God. Could you imagine a leader today doing something like that? A president of the United States doing something like that? I'm not talking about the difference between a Democrat and Republican. Neither party would do that. I'm talking about any current leader taking moral responsibility before the God of heaven for the moral decline and sin of their people. I can't even imagine what that would look like. And based on the moral trajectory of this nation, I'm 99.9% sure that will never happen. But the king of Nineveh did that. Not only did he humble himself, he also issued his own proclamation to have the people do likewise. Again, verse 7, by decree of the king and his nobles, This was binding on all people. Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. I'm doing it. You guys need to do it too. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He proclaims a fast demands that they put on sackcloth, that each one call out to his God and turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. That idea of not eating food, proclaiming a fast, is denying themselves, denying their physical appetites in humility before God. Again, putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes, those are signs of humility and signs of mourning, making it clear that they are in mourning over their sin. 
And he goes beyond that. He says, let them turn, let every man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now, as I've said before, Jonah had to have more, said more in his proclamation than the few words that we had recorded. The words of the king here indicate that he clearly understood that the reason for the judgment of God falling upon Nineveh was their evil and violence. And as a result of this, he gives up completely. This is total surrender. The command of the king is to everyone to just surrender, even for the animals. One author said the section builds up an impression of the totality of Nineveh's repentance by mentioning the mourning of great and small, king and commoner, man and beast. The summoning of animals to prayer would doubtless remind the audience of Joel's poetic interpretation of the cries of thirsty beasts as fervent prayers to God. Even the animals were to humble themselves. Again, this is a call for total surrender and a call for complete repentance. Not just total surrender, but complete repentance. Turn from your evil and the violence that is in your hands. And think about the significance of that statement. Nineveh would be the capital of the Assyrians. As I've said before, the Assyrians were known for their violence, particularly for their violent treatment of prisoners of war. Many nations have a way of justifying their actions when they believe it to be right. So it seems strange that the king of Nineveh would have declared the actions of his own people to be evil and violent. Not only declaring that they were evil and violent, but that they should turn from those things. That takes it a step further. Our nation, which is largely rejecting the biblical worldview upon which it was founded, reserves the words evil and violent for very particular circumstances. If you notice in the media, those words, particularly the word evil, bears with it a very clear moral weight. Evil is not neutral. Evil is the absence of good, the rejection of good, the expression of what is not good. And it can only be rightly defined if there is good. I mean by that, that evil is evil precisely because there is such a thing as good. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. But because we have a concept of good, even the ultimate good, then we can discuss what is not good, what is the epitome of all things not good, and we call that something evil. For example, when we have the most, some of the most heinous crimes, mass murders, violence involving the most vulnerable, children or the aged, you hear frequently in the media over and over again and everyone giving their assent that this is pure evil. It's like they get it, but they don't want to fully admit it. They get it, but they don't quite understand the full implications of what they're saying. The biblical worldview tells us that God is ultimately good. He is the good against which any other good and against which evil is measured. Evil is the rejection of God. It is rebellion against God. God is the greatest good, the ultimate good. To turn away from him, to reject him, is the epitome of evil. Christianity takes sin so seriously, not just the supposed big ticket items, the things that make the headlines as Christians are mocked as bigots or insensitive for their views on homosexuality for example, or the murder of the unborn. But the Christian worldview takes any sin seriously. Anything that is done contrary to the will of God, contrary to the word of God, any sin is taken seriously according to the Christian worldview precisely because it is a rejection of the greatest good, who is God. As we sang earlier, God is holy. We are made in his image. We are made to bear his image to the world. He made us for that purpose. He is worth that. 
He is worth our glorifying him. He is worth our obedience. When we do not glorify him, bear his image as it is, that is the greatest tragedy. When we violate each other, the violence, reference in the words of the king in our passage, the violence that we see on our streets daily, when we do so, we violate those made in the image of God. When we sin, as R.C. Sproul put it, we lie to the cosmos about the nature of God. We're supposed to bear his image. That is the greatest tragedy. That is the great evil in the world today. Not something outside of us. Not something that happens to us. But when we, who are made in the image of God, fail to bear his image well to the cosmos. And when we violate each other who are made in his image. That is cosmic treason. That is evil. Knowing this is not something that the natural man is able to determine. Thus again, as we turn back to our text, we're faced with the realization that it is only through the preaching of the word of God that the heart of the king was changed. And the king, as a representative for his people, the head of his people, issued a proclamation declaring that all of their ways up until this point have not been good, not neutral, but evil. They have been offensive to God. And that they need to seek the forgiveness of God. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He believed God. He believed that God was going to destroy Nineveh. He says, we have all been evil. We have dishonored and rebelled against his goodness. We must turn away. We must repent of our evil. And if we do, if we do that, perhaps God will relent and turn. The king didn't assume. He hoped. He hoped that their repentance would be sufficient. The Lord, the God of heaven, is angry, fiercely angry. We've done evil in his sight. He's going to destroy us. We must repent. We must turn away from our evil. Well, that perhaps he will spare us. Whatever we do when we proclaim the message of the gospel, we must make clear that this is not optional for people. Believing on the Lord Jesus is not like one option among many. Again, Acts 17, God is not asking for people to repent. He is commanding that people everywhere should repent. He's not offering them an olive branch, an opportunity to barter or negotiate. God commands that you must repent and turn away from your sin because judgment is coming. Believe on the Lord Jesus is a command. Repent of your sins is a command. Judgment is coming is a statement of fact. Those things must be clear when we present the gospel because that's a part of the gospel. When you see someone sitting in the middle of a busy roadway with an 18-wheeler barreling down upon them, you don't say, hey, would you like to hear information about how you can be saved from an 18-wheeler? I mean, if you care about them at all, you tell them the truth. Listen, you are going to die if you stay here. If you stay here, you are going to be run over and you will die. That's what's going to happen, period. You can get up and leave, move out of the way, get in the way of salvation, or you can stay here and you will die. Isaiah 66, behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by a sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. You get that? 
Isaiah 66, later on in the passage, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Revelation 14, speaking of those in the coming days of the tribulation, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence, listen to this, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. God is not playing. We have a saying, right? It's all fun and games until someone, ha- someone gets hurt. Someone's going to get hurt. Like forever. There's no coming back. There's, there's not mercy. You're not going to be able to ask for mercy at that point. There's no, oh, God, I'm sorry. When you stand before him in judgment, that's it. It's done. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus. These are commands. These are commands for your good. Perhaps someone this morning needed to hear that. These are commands, not options. That judgment is coming is not an empty statement of bluff. It is reality. Now, the other side of the coin is that as these are commands from the Lord, the God of heaven, the one who promises judgment for those who disobey, he's also the one who promises salvation for those who believe. Therefore, we can be assured that those who repent, those who believe in the Lord Jesus, that they will be saved. We don't have to wonder, as the king speculated, who knows if God will turn away from his anger. We can trust that he will if we repent. If that is what God has commanded, then those who obey his command will not be turned away. They will be saved. Repent and call upon the Lord. The king's words in chapter 3, verse 8 instructed, everyone call out mightily to God. Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a guarantee. Repent. Believe, call out to the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Well, the people of Nineveh repented. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 12, 41, as he chastises a generation of Israel to whom he preached for their unbelief. The Lord is faithful to save those who believe his word and show it by their repentance. We see this confirmed in the final verse. It's also the final point of our outline. Again, we saw... Jonah's proclaiming, the people repenting, the king's proclaiming, and now the Lord's relenting. Look again at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. If chapter 2 involved a passage of scripture that causes liberals and unbelievers to scoff and question, this verse and the intent of this verse has caused believers across the spectrum of Bible interpretations to scratch their heads. They get tripped up over that one little word there. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster. At face value, this passage suggests to some that God changed his mind. In fact, in the King James Version, the word translated relented in ESV is translated repented. 
Now, the reality is that the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe what God did is the word that we would use for repent. But in the Hebrew, the original language, it is a different word. In the original, the root of the word that is used for, that is translated relented, is the root of the word for compassion. God had compassion on them. Remember what Jonah says about God in chapter 4, verse 2. We've mentioned this many times. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting concerning calamity. That is a part of who God is. It is not inconsistent with his character to relent concerning calamity. If he's declared that there are consequences for sin and that those consequences will happen unless people repent, it is no bluff. It is a statement of fact. Consequences will come unless they repent. Nevertheless, he is compassionate and willing to relent concerning calamity if those certain conditions are met. And that condition is repentance. Jonah understood this firsthand, right? He was destined to die for his rebellion. He had been driven from the sight of the Lord, cast overboard on his way to Sheol, the place of the dead. He had literally breathed his last breath. But what did he do while he was sinking in the the ocean? He called out to the Lord. He repented of his disobedience and the Lord spared his life. That is consistent with the character of God. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be delivered. And again, looking at the text, the emphasis made clear by the words of the king that it was their evil and violence that initiated God's anger and judgment. In response to this truth, they turned away from their evil. That was the call. Turn away from your evil and your violence and call out mightily to God. They hoped in God that he would turn away from his judgment, and so he did. Well, our God is a compassionate God. Yes, he is holy, and so is declared that judgment is coming for those who remain in their rebellion. But he's also compassionate, and so is declared that the condition for which people may receive pardon is that they turn from their sin into his son. Thus again, we are called to make disciples. In order to do this, we must preach the gospel. In preaching the gospel, we must pre-use the word of God. There's a popular marquee, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I understand that sentiment. The sentiment is that we ought to live out the gospel. And that is true. We ought to properly adorn the gospel of salvation. That's what Paul says in Titus. We ought to be zealous for good deeds. But if we're actually preaching the gospel, that requires words. And it requires the word of God. Again, God is the creator and has authority over us. We have sinned. We have disobeyed him. Again, Romans 6.23. We fall short of his glory. God sent Jesus, who is Jesus Christ the righteous, according to 1 John, but who also became the sacrifice for us, taking our judgment. God raised Jesus from the dead, accepted his sacrifice, and declares him Lord, Romans 4, 24. Jesus is the judge. He is the Lord. There is a day fixed for judgment when he will stand before us and judge the peoples of the earth. Again, Acts 17.31 and John 3.36. Your only option for salvation is the way that God has provided. Repent, believe in Jesus who is Lord of all. Call upon his name and you will be saved. Again, if you're here this morning and you have never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus, if you've never consciously turned from your sin to believe in and follow Jesus, then you are still in danger at this very moment. And you really have no other hope other than trusting in the Lord Jesus. 
Turn to him today. Turn away from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. Believer, preach that message. Preach the gospel. Preach in season and out of season. And as you preach, trust in the word of God that it is God's power to save those who believe. Father, we thank you for this day. Once again, we thank you for your word, which is true your word which sanctifies us. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for those whom you sent to bring the message of the gospel to us. We thank you that as your word went forth, that you gave us faith to believe in the Lord Jesus, that you set us apart in your son, that you gave us new life in your son. And we thank you that now that we have new life in your son, we have the obligation, we have the privilege of also being his witnesses and bearing the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. Father, help us to do that well. Help us to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the peoples of the world, to the nations of the world. Help us to, as Jonah, simply preach the word and to trust you to do the rest as your word and your spirit work on the hearts of the unbelieving. We pray this all in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.